we can all turn to Hebrews chapter 9. We're looking at the end of Hebrews chapter 9. This has been building for several chapters now. We're almost to the end of this topic in Hebrews. Uh, It culminates in chapter 10. But here at the end of chapter 9, we've already heard about the, the sacrifices. We've heard about how Jesus is our great high priest. We've heard about the necessity of blood. There must be blood. And so none of that is new today. What we're going to be talking about is the role of Christ's appearances. Christ has appeared. He reappeared in his resurrection and he will appear again when he comes again. We're going to look at the significance of that and how that is good news for God's people. And so join me as we read, starting in verse 23 of chapter 9, here now the word of the Lord, where he writes, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, which he's been talking about for a few chapters, but the heavenly things themselves with even better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord, and you say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks indeed. Let this be a reminder for you to bring your own Bibles. As we've just, uh, we've just heard the good news of the gospel the necessity for for cleanliness and sacrifices. And it reminded me uh, of when our last kiddo was born, but this has happened when all three of our kiddos were born. Uh, I had the privilege of being in the operating room during the C-section. And for the fathers who have had babies via C-section, you know that you get to play dress up. They give you these oversized scrubs uh, and complete with shoe coverings and a shower cap looking thing. If you're unfortunate enough to catch a glimpse of yourself in the mirror, you start wondering how your wife was ever attracted to you. Um, But my question for us this morning is, why does the hospital require this? Why why do the nurses insist on you wearing these things, otherwise you can't enter the operating room? Is it because they're trying to protect you? Is it because there's something dirty in the operating room that they're protecting you from? No, it's quite the opposite. They're protecting the operating room from you. You're the one with germs. You're the one that brings your uncleanliness, your dirtiness to the room. And that can affect everyone and everything in it. And so as you read verse 23, which you might see on your screens in a minute, picture an operating room and keep that in mind when the author writes, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things the tabernacle, 
to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things with better sacrifices than these. Over the last few weeks, we've been talking about the sacrifices, the the priests, all the blood that was necessary, and how all of that pointed to Christ. The tabernacle was like the practice operating room, the copy of the place of God's presence. And so as the sinful high priest brought sinful people before a sinless God, he needed to purify himself, the people, and everything he was using if they're going to be before the presence of God. Makes sense, right? So now we read that the heavenly things themselves needed to be purified. Well, that doesn't make sense. Heaven is sinless. There is no sin in heaven. Why do those things need to be purified? Because our high priest, our high priest, Jesus, in actuality, is doing what those things pointed to. Just as the high priest brought sinners into the tabernacle, so the heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, brings sinners into the very presence of God. The heavenly realities that these copies pointed to needed to be purified with even better sacrifices. Not soap, not bleach, not the blood of bulls and goats, but the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Because as we saw last week in verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is not what you need, and that is forgiveness of sins, if you're going to enter before the presence of God. And that is exactly what we read in verse 24, that Jesus sacrificed himself to do. He has has appeared and will appear now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And so our passage today tells us something that is relevant for all time, all peoples, all places. In verse 27, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And the question for you this morning, the thing that decides whether or not you're going to listen this morning, is how's that going to go for you? When all your thoughts, all your desires, all your actions are exposed, are you clean enough to enter the operating room? Are you pure enough to stand before a perfectly holy God? God tells us that we are not. That's the bad news. And we have to accept that bad news if we're going to accept the good news, which is there is a way to stand before God. Just as you will appear before God to be judged, so Christ appears before God on behalf of his people. That's good news. But we're going to elaborate on that as we go this morning, and that's going to be the focus of our worship this morning. We're going to look at the appearances of Christ and what they accomplish, and we're going to look at just two things. Hence the long intro. Christ has appeared to deal with sin. Christ will also appear to deliver the saints. We're going to look at the two appearances. Christ has appeared to deal with sin. Christ will appear to deliver his saints. Let's look at the first one. Verse 25. When Christ first appeared and entered into the holy places after his death, resurrection, and ascension... We read what it was not before we read what it is. And so it's not to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest does, every year with blood not his own. 
Because if that were the case, he would have to have suffered repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Why does the author have to clarify that Jesus did not offer himself repeatedly? Why does he have to bring home that point? Well, it's because he has a healthy understanding of sin. I'm confident you've all have heard these two passages because I've said them and Rob has said them and other people have said them. Romans 3, Romans 6, both verse 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I'm confident that's not the first time you're hearing this. But Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the consequences of that are death. The thing you earn for yourself by being a sinner and sinning is death. All of us have sinned in the past, but that has continuous consequences. All have sinned and do right now fall short of the glory of God. And therefore, the price that you must pay is death. So continuous sacrifice, continuous death made perfect sense in the Hebrew mind. You have sinned. Sin requires death. You have sinned, you do continually fall short of the glory of God. There has to be lots of deaths, always deaths, perpetual death. But because there's continuous sacrifice, that means that sin hasn't been fully dealt with. And so, if sin hasn't been fully dealt with, can we go before the presence of God? Can we stand before God? A pure, holy God? Can you enter the operating room if you fall short of the standards of cleanliness? No. And so the next question is, how do we get in? How do we get clean? How do we deal with our sin? Are scrubs enough? Can we clothe ourselves with good works and good intentions and enter into the presence of a perfect God? Can we wash ourselves clean enough through holiness? and making more and more sacrifices of our time and money. Reading the Bible longer, reading more commentaries, praying more, giving more money. Is it more sacrifices that's required? The author of Hebrews goes to great pains to tell you that it's not more sacrifices, it's better sacrifices. Verse 26, we've seen what it was not to do. Jesus did not appear to offer himself repeatedly. Verse 26, as it is, he has appeared for this reason. Once for all, once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Sin is put away. Unlike the other priests who offer continuous sacrifices, Jesus came once because that's all that was required. And when he came, he put away sin. He removed it. Our sin is not covered or whitewashed. It is put away clean. But because our sin deserves death, you can't just forget about sin. You can't just kind of tuck it away and pretend it doesn't exist. It had to be dealt with. It had to be put on someone else. And that's what we read was the job of the servant of God in Isaiah chapter 53. Where he writes, yet he, this servant of God, bore the sin of many, and he continuously makes intercession for the transgressors. We know this servant to be the one described in verse 28, Jesus the Christ. Verse 28, so Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, that is how he is described. That is why he is 
your hope because your sin has to be dealt with. And the only way to fully deal with it is through a perfect sacrifice, the one who offered himself. He took on our sin so that we can confidently say our sin is put away. And I thought of immediately this camping trip I took years ago. Um, we parked our car pretty far away from the site. That's just the only option we had. And so we had to walk quite a ways with quite a few bags. And among the group was a mom, a dad, and a, and a boy, a young boy. And uh, like many young boys, he thought he could carry more than he actually could. He was in that stage where he overestimated his strength, a stage that some of us never outgrow. And um, so as, thank you, uh, so as we're going, as we're going, he, he starts to lose his poker face, you know, as many of us do, you know, we don't want to let on that it's too much for us to carry. And so he, he starts to, to show that he's struggling. And so what were we supposed to do? Should we have just left the bags there, the too heavy to carry? No, that's not how it works. That's not how it works with camping equipment, and it's not how it works with sin. We can't just leave it there. It has to be dealt with. We need it. Somebody else had to carry it. And so, of course, he had a good dad who carried his bag the rest of the way. But what struck me, no one's surprised by that ending, but what struck me was what the boy did afterward. Free of his burden, free of these heavy things that he had to carry around, that little boy didn't sit down. That little boy didn't ask to be carried himself. He didn't lie down and take a nap. That boy started running and skipping and joyfully walking the rest of the way. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has done for us when he appeared. This is how he dealt with our sin. It's not just about taking our sins. It's about what that results in. We are, as Galatians 5 says, free. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And what I would like for you to consider on the car ride home is how does it change your life to know that Jesus has already dealt with your sin? How does it change your life to know that you are free? I think we should start with that verse we just looked at, Galatians 5. It has a part two. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. There's all sorts of yokes of slavery that we submit to. For the Galatian church, it was circumcision and all that came along with it. But for us, it can be that same burden of the law. It can be the burden that others place on us, the expectations we feel from others. Or it can be the burden that we place on ourselves. But freedom is a two-way street. Freedom in the scripture is both freedom from and also freedom to. Freedom from alone is not freedom. It is only free when you are free to. And so because Christ has taken our sin and put it on himself and dealt with it finally, put it away, the anxious is free from their own worries. And they're free to bear the burdens of others. The arrogant is free from their own self-centeredness and free to consider the needs of others as more important than themselves. The aloof 
is free from their own apathy and free to care. Care about others, care about important things, work hard, find purpose. That is the power of the gospel. That is what happens when someone trusts in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. They don't obey in order to deal with their sin. They obey because their sin has already been dealt with. Amen, Christian? That is the power of the gospel. That is what Jesus has already done when he first appeared. But the good news of the gospel is that he will come again. And so just as we've seen what Jesus has done, that he has appeared to decisively deal with sin, he also will appear to finally and fully deliver his saints. Look at verse 27. We're, we see what we're delivered from. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. But what's interesting about this passage that's quoted quite often is that it's, for my grammar nerds, it's a dependent clause. It doesn't stand on its own. If I were to tell you, just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, you'd kind of lean in and maybe fall over waiting for the rest of it, right? What's the rest? What's the point? Here it is. Just as it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ. I know I'm still leaving you hanging. Again, bring your Bibles and you'll know what it says. But to appreciate the point he's making, you have to remember what we've been discussing the past few chapters. The high priests and the sacrifices. Now, place yourself in the, in the sandals of Old Testament Hebrews. Okay? The high priest enters this, not just the holy place, the holy of holy places, once a year. It was so sacred that they tied a rope around his waist just in case he did it wrong and was struck dead. And so what are you doing as he enters the places? Are you going to get dinner ready? Are you going to play? No, you're waiting. You're waiting with eager anticipation. What are you waiting for? The result. When he enters the holy places, one of two things is going to happen. He's going to come out or he's not going to come out. Which signifies to you either God has accepted his sacrifice and our sins are forgiven or they're not. In that sense, we have good news because our great high priest has already reappeared. When Jesus rose from the dead, that was the sign, sealed, and delivered promise that his sacrifice of himself was accepted. Our sin has been dealt with. We don't have to fear that anymore. The author's concern now is his second appearance. And here's where he makes his point. Why will Jesus appear a second time? Again, follow me here in grammar world. It's, it's not going to take long, I promise. There's something in, in, in grammar and also in scripture called parallelism. You make one statement, you parallel it with another. He makes that statement here. We've been reading it. Let me summarize it. Let me paraphrase it. Just as Jesus will, sorry, just as you will die and get judged, so Christ did die and will judge. So what's the obvious implication? Oh, don't show that yet. You're, you're ruining it. No. Just as, 
just as you will die and get judged, so Christ did die and will judge. Do you see that? Especially those of you who have your Bibles, you can see it right in front of you. That's supposed to be the parallel. And so the obvious implication of that is, so get your act together. Clean yourself up. Wash your hands so you can enter the operating room. Put on scrubs. Make yourself worthy. That, that, that would be a natural implication. Just as you will die and get judged, so Christ will come again to judge you. And if that's what the text says, then Jesus is no better than Santa Claus. You know the song. You better watch out. Better not cry. You better not pout. And I'm telling you why. He's coming. You better, you better watch out, Christian. You better not sin. You better obey. I'm telling you why. Jesus is coming again. I've heard that sermon. It's not good news. Because that's not what the author says. Look now. You can put it on the screen now. Look now. What he says. Just as it is appointed for man to die once. And right after that comes the judgment. So, Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. But it's not to deal with sin. Why? You could probably answer that. He already has. He already has dealt with sin. He's coming again to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That is good news. He's coming to save He's not coming to deal with sin because he's already put it away. It's gone. It's dealt with. He's not coming to judge because he's already taken our judgment. He's coming to save. Amen? Yeah. If we were a different denomination, I would ask you to say hallelujah, but I won't do that to you. Now the question comes up. It's a natural question. I don't blame you for asking it. What do you mean Jesus will save, Pastor? I am saved. What do you mean Jesus is coming to save? I'm already saved. Yes and no. We talked a few weeks ago about how the Old Testament sacrificial system is like a, a movie trailer. And the, the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus is the main feature. Uh, let me build on that genius illustration with a feeble attempt of my own. I've been working on, on this all week, so um, you can tell me what you think. The, the way that Christ dealt with sin during his first appearance is like an online purchase. His second coming is the delivery. No? Okay. Um, <laughs> that's fine. Uh, you come up with a bell illustration. <laughs> Here's what I mean by that. When you purchase something online... A price is paid, right? The item is secured. For all intents and purposes, that item is yours. But there's a waiting period. It's yours, but you don't have it yet. Now imagine instead of uh, buying in an air fryer or something to hang on your wall, you bought salvation. It's yours. It has your name on it. Nobody can take it from you, but it's not here yet. When Jesus first appeared, he dealt with sin. He truly and actually and really defeated sin and secured salvation from his people. Nobody is taking anything away from that. 
But like an online purchase, though it is secured, nobody can snatch you out of the Savior's hand. It's not yours yet. It's not fully yours to hold on to. Because the event from which he is saving us is future. It's judgment. It comes after you die. Just as appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. And unlike our shopping experiences at times, this delivery will happen. It won't get lost in transit. It won't get wet from the rain. It won't get thrown at the door and damaged. It, this is ours. It is secure. It will happen. And because of this, I'm sure you've heard the phrase already and not yet. Because of that, Scripture speaks of it in both ways. So look at Colossians, which you have heard from this pulpit many times. Jesus is described as the one who has delivered us. It's happened already from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And yet we're told that we have redemption right now. We have the forgiveness of sins right now. Both are true. Or like in Romans chapter 5, where he says that we have now been justified by his blood. But much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We are, and yet, we are already justified, and yet, much more, something awaits us. During his first appearance, Jesus gave the payment. During his second appearance, he delivers. And the question, the final question for us this, this morning is who is it that Jesus is coming to deliver? Verse 28. Those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Another question for you to consider this week, if you didn't like the first one. What does it look like to eagerly wait for Christ? What does that look like? It means at least what we read in Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah, in chapter 25, tells the people, the waiting people, the people in exile, the people suffering, the people struggling to maintain their faith, people just like the Hebrews. He promises them a day, and he says that on this day, on that day, be, you will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh, the Lord we have waited for him. And so therefore, let us be glad. Let us rejoice in his salvation. Christian, this whole letter is for those who are eagerly awaiting for Christ. People just like you and me. People going through suffering. People struggling to maintain their faith. People who are tired of the aches, the pains, the drama the sins of others and our own sin. It is so annoying. It, 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 there's no better word for it. It is so annoying to struggle with the same sin after five years, after 10 years, after 20, 30, 40 years. This letter is for you. For those who are struggling to persevere, but we don't just persevere like we persevere through our workouts or a, a meeting that could have been an email. We, we, we persevere glad, 
rejoicing in the salvation of Jesus. Because as much as we have occasion to rejoice in our current salvation, how much more? How much more our future and final deliverance? All my bodily aches and pains have an expiration date. All my struggles in my marriage with my kids, with my parents, with my siblings, they have an expiration date. All the suffering I endure because of my own worrying, my own pride, my own insecurities, they have an expiration date. What does that do for you, Christian? What does that do as you eagerly await your Savior? Well, you are reminded of the words of Psalm 23. A psalm we know very well, but there's this one phrase. I go back to it over and over. The Lord prepares a table for you, Christian, in the presence of his enemies, in your, of your enemies. The Lord anoints, anoints your head with oil, but your cup overflows. That is true of every Christian for all time and forever. Your cup overflows if you are in Christ, if you are the if you are in the infinite Christ, whose grace and mercy and blessings overflow, praise God from whom all blessings flow. If you are in that God, that Christ, your cup is not struggling. Your cup objectively overflows whether you're feeling it or not. And so when my greatest needs are already taken care of, when my sin is dealt with, when my future is so secure that it can be spoken of in the past tense, I'm free. My cup overflows. And from that cup, I'm able to forgive. I'm able to suffer. I'm able to count it all joy. I'm able to be gracious to those who are downright mean to me. I'm able to be merciful to those who would never even give me the time of day. I'm able to do all those things because I am an in Christ. Yet not I, but through Christ in me. Because my sin has been dealt with and my salvation is secure in Christ. Because of that good news, join me as we thank our Lord and Savior in prayer and enjoy the table he has prepared for us. Dear Lord, it is good news indeed that you have dealt with our sin and that you have secured our salvation. Thank you for not just reminding us with words or with actions, but reminding us with a table. Thank you that our Lord and Savior died for people who certainly did not deserve it. Thank you that our Lord and Savior died for people who didn't even want it. While we were enemies, you died for your people and secured a salvation for them. And so we pray for all those struggling in this room, even for all those who are not struggling but will one day struggle, that you would remind them of this table, that you would use this table to strengthen them. And we pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. As I remind you what this table is about, let me invite those who are going to uh, serve this table uh, to come forward and get ready. Because what we see in this table with our eyes is what we have just heard 
with our ears. It is good news. And so as those who serve the table come forward, let me remind you of what we have just heard. You will die. You will face judgment. Every passing thought, every careless action, every secret word will be revealed. Standing before God, perfection and holiness in full display, nobody will stand confidently. Every knee will bow. It's a matter of whether you bow the knee now on earth or whether we wait to stand before God. This table, it shows us the lengths that Jesus was willing and did go through to secure for himself a people, a rebel people, a sinful people. And so as our kiddos rejoin us, uh, what we're going to show them, what we're going to remind them and ourselves is the truth of what this table points to. It points not to a theoretical salvation. It points not only to a spiritual, only salvation. It points to an actual salvation grounded in an actual point in human history, grounded in the cross of Jesus Christ. When you see this bread, it reminds you that Jesus gave up his body. When you see this blood, it reminds you that without blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so Jesus shed his perfect blood. So the last thing I need to say is that if you are not eagerly awaiting this salvation, if after hearing the good news of the gospel, you continue to stand on your own, trusting in what you can do, trusting in your own cleanliness to enter the operating room, scripture warns you not to join this meal. Scripture warns you to instead consider if you are clean enough, if you are good enough to stand before the presence of God. Likewise, if you consider yourself a believer, but you are not living in the freedom purchased for you, if you are not freely giving forgiveness, if you are withholding forgiveness to those who have asked for it, or if you are not willing to repent and continue to living, continue living in sin, making a practice of sin without repentance. The Lord likewise warns you to let this table go and instead repent. Repent, find grace at the cross of Jesus Christ. But for those of you who recognize their need of a Savior, for those of you who recognize their weakness and seek to find strength in your Savior, this table is for you. Come, enjoy it, rejoice in the Savior who asks you to come because he is gentle and lowly in heart. Pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this table, for what it points to, for what it reminds us of. May you strengthen us, Lord, for all that we are going through and will go through. And may we wholly depend on you, not on our own abilities, as we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.